It's our extra hour of the morning show. I'm Heidi Holton. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate it. We are bringing you a conversation today, a virtual conversation with Chuck and Aaron for Dig Deep. Aaron Brown is our liberal commentator. You know him from Minnesota Brown and the Great Northern Radio Show. Chuck, CEO and founder of Strong Towns. He's our conservative commentator. You can find information at strongtowns.org. Chuck, Aaron, thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. I, most of our shows in the studio involve Aaron and I giving each other hand signals to interrupt. <laughs> so I don't know. Oh, we're uh, just going to run all over. This is going to work on now. the radio, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so. I know there's tons of talk out there, but I really wanted to talk to you guys today about, you know, the state of the world. We are in a pandemic like we've never seen. When we generally start these conversations, we kind of begin with some history. But I, I just, where, where should we begin today as, as we start talking? Well, I, uh, there is a historical precedent to some of what we're going through. We've just never gone through something like this um, you know, in our modern lifetimes. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a little bit. Uh, we can compare some of this to the what they called the Spanish flu outbreak of uh, 1918 and 19, uh, which killed, um, you know, 50 million people uh, around the world or more, and um, including many here in northern Minnesota. And it shut the economy down, and it did a lot of bad things. Um, but... Um, there are some comparisons with what we're going through now and, and also some things that are different. And I think more than anything, what the history shows is that um, an event like this kind of lays bare, maybe I don't know if this is what Chuck wants to talk about too, but it kind of lays bare some of the problems we've got in our economy and our political system and, and even within our own society with handling big problems. It definitely exposes the underlying fragility. I, I think the big thing about uh, the the 1918 flu that is different than today, they were in a war back then. They were in World War One, and so there was a lot of suppression of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, troops were getting moved around the country. Uh, people were moving around freely. And l- largely, until it hit you, people were unaware that this was going on because information was suppressed. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was the only country uh, in the Western world that was reporting on it. They were not involved in World War I, and so the press reports out of there, and everyone was reading, oh, this flu is terrible in Spain. No, it, it was terrible everywhere. It's just Spain reported on it. Uh, today yeah, we have quite knowledge. Likely, quite likely started the in the United States. To talk about so, yeah, it just had spread all over the world by that point. Right, right. And so we're, we're, we're able to talk about it now, and I think our biggest weapon against this is the idea that we can have open discussion. Unfortunately, and as Aaron alluded to, the fragility of our, our political system and our, our discourse today in America um, may also be our, our biggest liability in that. So let's move into what is happening right now and that fragility, as you, sh- you said, Chuck, and how... Um, politics is kind of playing out first you know sometimes you're hearing i just had on earlier this morning um the minnesota house majority leader and how minnesota's coming together and politics are not as important right now but they're trying to keep the country safe but it's still out there and still really strong 
Yeah, I, I, uh, Chuck, if you want to go first, go ahead. We don't have our signals, but. Yeah, (laughs) why don't I go first on this one? Okay, go ahead. I I, I do think, I mean, I I am proud of Minnesota because I I do feel like we are in many ways uh, now rising to the best of us in that sense. There was a time maybe three or four weeks ago where there was some ambiguity and some, some, some criticism of the governor for the way he had chosen to uh, issue, you know, the stay in, stay at home order and, uh, and do some of the, the early stuff. I think now we're starting to see that that was wise and maybe even late. Um, you know, I'm, that's not a criticism. It, it was a difficult decision to make. Uh, but, you know, these things with the exponential growth are, are always going to be second guessed after the case. And if we do this well, uh, you know, there won't be the impacts and, and there'll be even more second guessing. But as, as we look across the country, and I talk to a lot of people in a lot of different states, uh, the politics is really hindering uh, our capacity to, to solve these problems. Politicians not wanting to uh, admit they were behind the curve, and then also just a, a general maybe disbelief of, uh, of things uh, is, is hindering our kind of collective response. And what we need right now is a collective response. Right, and... I, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, the thing about a virus like this or an issue like this is it's, tr- the, the problem is truly nonpartisan. You know, the viruses don't care. Uh, the, um, the, you know, social reaction is all that matters. And it doesn't matter whether the people who are responding to this problem are Democrats or Republicans either. I, I could look across the country and identify governors, for instance, of both parties who, did the best they could and probably saved lives with quicker action than others. And, and that's nonpartisan. But I think, and I was alluding to this earlier, uh, and Chuck and I have talked about this a lot, is we have this kind of partisan culture where, you know, uh, I was actually disturbed to the point of not being able to sleep a couple nights, maybe a week and a half ago, because it felt like in watching the news, which is always terrible these days anyway, but in watching the news, in reading social media, also terrible, and in, in talking to people in my life, people, you know, family members and friends, people I knew, that there was this issue of different realities that people would believe in. People would believe different facts would have different ideas about what this really meant and who or what was behind in some grand conspiracy to, to do something bad, always related to the same old red versus blue, left versus right, us versus them kind of arguments we had been having before we even knew what coronavirus was. And and that was really disturbing to me because it felt like, and, and as Chuck mentioned, this is not... This is something we all, it needs a collective response. It's like, you know, Independence Day, and the aliens aren't in big spaceships. They're tiny little viruses. We need a collective response to the problem. But I was probably most disturbed by um, the, uh, the immediate partisanship. Now, I will say that that's gotten a little better, maybe even just this week. It's finally sinking in, I think, with more and more people that we are we are in this together 
uh, and that the truth of the matter is serious uh, and, and, and not something that's necessarily a political conspiracy. But that was really disturbing to me when, when we started this out. Chuck? Yeah, I, I, I concur with what Aaron said. And I, I think you're, you know, you, you're, you're looking at a situation where we are conditioned reflexively to react in that partisan way. And I think that our politics, uh, let me put it this way, I think our politicians have benefited from having us, in a, in a sense, wired to think that way about things. You know, I can activate my base a lot easier if they're kind of chomping at the bit to disagree with or distrust anything from the other side of the political aisle. All of a sudden, when you have to work together, when, when it's something that, you know, is literally life or death, uh, those instincts not only serve us wrong, but, but they can be deadly. And I, I think that's one of the things that Aaron and I have, have talked about for a long time is that, hey, you know, it, it's, it's fun to watch Fox News and MSNBC. It's fun to get all lathered up and, you know, hate the other side for no good reason. But, my gosh, I mean, th- th- it's, a, it's not fun in games when uh, the stakes are this high and this immediate. And, and it requires, you know, not just a, a response. I mean, we're not drafting people to go off to war and we haven't been hit, you know, by the Japanese in Pearl Harbor or what have you. I mean, we're talking about something that takes us talking to each other and, and figuring something out that has this exponential curve to it where we have to act today and the results of that action aren't going to show up for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks or more. Um, that, that's a difficult problem to solve. It's Chuck Marone. He's our conservative commentator for Dig Deep. Aaron Brown is joining us as well. He's our liberal commentator, kind of talking about the state of the world right now. And a lot of people have lost their jobs. It's a difficult time. But uh, people who create pollsters, people out there with polls, are sure still in business and giving leaders uh, information on how the public is responding to this, and they are tailoring some of the things they're saying because of that as well, because there is still political race going on out there, many of them. Right, and and it's 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 really interesting. We're, we're in a moment historically where, you know, 20 years from now, this will all be part of a of a, a political uh, truth and reality that everyone's agreed upon. But, but right now, um, we're really in a strange place because we were, before this all hit, you know, the Democrats were about to conclude their nomination process and the long grind of the election was, was going to take place, and that included, you know, Congress and the Senate races and the state races and all of the usual political battles. All of that is, is, it's not on hold because, as you point out, Heidi, there's, there's still polling, there's still underground kind of wink-wink campaign activity uh, taking place. The president is taking his opportunities to make political commentary where he can. And so this is all still happening, but it's just, it's muted. It's, it's kind of like um, a campaign, you know, during a, a, a mourning period or a tragedy where the campaign is kind of chopped off at the knees and just kind of, it's still aware, it's self-aware, but it's not able to hold rallies or function as a campaign. So we're, we're going to deal with a campaign that's unlike any, I think, that's ever, any presidential campaign that's ever been run 
in um, in our history because we face maybe there are very few rallies left even now and maybe towards the fall where it got the all clear but we don't even know that and and um, and so it's this campaign of the mind that's going to take place once the campaign ads are you know appropriate to air and once the um, digital um, strategies start to kick in and our our social media feeds and web experiences are are caked with the um, you know one hit you know very emotional web ads that that tend to get distributed during a presidential race now and it'll be very different and um, and people won't even really be able to talk to each other as much as they once did so we're we're also going to have this you know where the these web this media experience is going to be our dominant it already is a dominant way but it's going to be even more powerful in our experience with with the candidates and and the elections and so it, it's we're entering a, in a very interesting time and and I think there's room for leadership here there's room for people to emerge as candidates who who can soothe and reassure people but it's also going to be a ripe environment for fear and fear-mongering and and very emotional and angry communications. So I, I I wish I could say I was optimistic that things would be great, but I, I kind of think we're going to see some ugliness before this is done. Well, I think when we step back and look to elections are, especially elections where you have an incumbent, are always a referendum really on how things are going. Uh, right. How is the incumbent done? And what's the current state of things? And, I mean, obviously right now it's impossible to predict where we're going to be in October and November. And that goes, you know, from the top of the ballot at the president all the way down to our, our local races. It's impossible for us to say where we're going to be. And, and really, I, I find it interesting that a lot of the politics has been suppressed. I mean, who's heard from Joe Biden in the last two weeks? I have not. And, yeah. and maybe he's he, been out you know, the thing is, he does interviews, things. but nobody watches him. You know, like, right. he's he's right. a non he's a, he's a non factor for that reason. Right, and and maybe I mean it's probably smart for him to just save his ammo and, and stay out of the limelight because there's not a lot of gains to be had right now in a leadership standpoint. I, I think you know if we're sitting here unemployed, uh, worried about where our food's going to come from and uh, still doing, you know, massive social distancing come November, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's hard to see a lot of incumbents, period, let alone the president, be reelected. Uh, that's why I think we're having this tension over, you know, let's get the economy opened up again, let's get people out working again. Um, and, and, you know, to a large extent, the politics is clouding the rational response here. And that, that's, to me, I think the ultimate danger in the short term. I don't really care long term. I mean, we'll, we, I think this is going to change our political system uh, in the long term, regardless, because I, I think those fragilities that Aaron and I talk about so often are going to really force us to rethink a lot of things. But in the near term, it's causing us to do some silly things and, and have some discussions that could potentially be very harmful. And I guess that's the thing to worry about from a politics standpoint. Yeah, I really agree with that. I, I think um, the the long term outcome will be whatever it is. I think at this point, all we can do is make it worse. Um, it'll be fine 
if we respond and recover, you know, like you would, just like getting sick, not to use a, a too, too grim a metaphor, but like you get sick and you get better, you know, when you're really sick and you have to stay home from work and you can't even think straight, that's that. Your day is not going to be a productive day in the traditional sense. But but then you start feeling better and you get healthy again and you go back to work and you feel great. We'll get there. Um, but um, in the meantime, you've got to take care of yourself. And that's really whether it's the social distancing or uh, the you know e- efforts to change how we manufacture medical goods and get, getting stuff where it needs to go, just from a logistics standpoint, not worrying about what state it's in, whether it's a red state or a blue state or wherever, just getting all the stuff to where it needs to go, helping the places worst hit first, all of this stuff that you... That humans can do. And and then we can talk about the long range. The long range problems are no different than than what they were before we we all knew what this virus was called. They're they're still there and a lot of the bad things that are going to come like for instance, Chuck and I, in one of our early episodes, talked about the future of local news and local media, newspapers and and you know these newspapers and the newspaper chains in particular are getting murdered right now because there's no ad revenue, no ad revenue at all. Um, even online advertising is drying up because of there being no money to put into advertising. And it will kill companies. It will do that. But Chuck and I already talked about how that would probably happen someday. And, and then something new would rise in its place that could be better or could be more adept to, uh, adapted to um, what, what our society is and how, how information is actually shared. That's just one industry. Uh, there's a lot of industries that are going to, and it's so hard, and so many people are going to have to suffer to change and go through it. But it was probably going to happen. If it wasn't a virus, it would have been something else that, that got us there. And, and that's, that's, I think, and I think what these feelings that we all feel when we're deal, when we watch the economy shut down and we wish we didn't have to, and we see people ourselves lose our jobs, um, it's a it's a sense of grief over the way things used to be, being gone for good, and and having to accept that things are 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 going to be different now. I think that that's the the really painful part here, and mm-hmm. you know I, I I think we're all in a position to help our neighbors and help the people around us. And I think that's the thing to do right now. We're having this discussion, and this is the, the dysfunctional part, I think. You know, we, we passed a huge uh, economic stimulus bill, and uh, there's, there's promises of more on the way. Um, but the majority of that has gone to propping up uh, systems that are ridiculously fragile, systems that failed immediately because they need constant uh, cash flow, constant money coming in. They're, they're levered down with debt and, and they're levered down with obligations and they just can't survive even a very short period of time with the economy taking any type of a, a break. I think that what is being shown here, and I think the, the big shift that we're going to see is that big is fragile. Um, whether that is, you know, the CDC and the World Health Organization recommending that nobody wear masks because they're not any good, which is, you know, they're now both backtracked on that and said, you know, that was the exact opposite advice we should have been giving. Um, 
you know, to the big corporations that, you know, one week into a shutdown say, you know, we're going out of business now unless we get trillions of dollars of bailouts. I think we're going to shift our conversation at some point to how do we rescue this system that was deeply, deeply fragile and flawed to what parts of the system can recover the most quickly and how do we help that recovery happen? And when we do that, it's not the big national corporate chains. It's not the big uh, supply chains. The local farmer is in a much better position to recover than the international supply chain bringing you your, you know, cheese puffs. Uh, the the local uh, business is in a much better position to recover than the one that is weighed down with securitized debt that has to be unwound through 10,000 different pension funds. Uh, I, I think what we are about to see, and I, I hope where we shift our resources and function, is how do we help people get back on their feet? And when we when we have that conversation, it's got to be a local one. It's got to be one where we say, Let's bail out people and not systems. Let's uh, help people get going, not systems uh, stay, uh, you know, these zombie systems that really are, are not serving us the way that they need to. And I, I think that's what we're seeing more clearly than ever right now. Yeah. I, uh, oh, sorry, Heidi, if you want to. No, keep, keep going, Aaron. I got okay, a question good. for you guys. Um, I, I am... Um... I, I see a lot of that, and we really notice, I think, um, with all the businesses having to shut down, um, you know, having a, you know, having a, a corporate-owned chain store close is one thing, but when you see, when you know the name of the business owner who has to close their doors, and you know that every day they're not open is a day that is um, specifically hurtful and hard for their family and their bills and their lives, and you, and you really feel that and on a grand scale because it's all of them or most of them at this point. Um, and, and also, in a way, the tragedy that, you know, Walmart's open, um, you know, the box stores are, are, a lot of them are open uh, because they're essential, and, and that the essential businesses that we used to have in our communities, a lot of the smaller ones, aren't, aren't there anymore. Um, to be open, and and so there's that. But but I my takeaway um, is uh, is the value. Uh, Chuck said, bring it back to the people, not the structure or the organization. And I, I would I would echo that. Maybe in a <laughs> it may be more akin to my politics. But um, I'll give you an example that really has me thinking. Um, my mother is a daycare provider. Has been ever since her children were. Ever since she was done taking care of my sisters and I, she, she's been working in a daycare center of one kind or another. And it's been her only job, and uh, she wouldn't want me to tell you how much she makes, but uh, I looked it up in the average income for a daycare provider, according to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, is about $19,500 thereabouts. And um, it, it's, it's, a hard, and, and it's a hard way to make a living. It's, uh, of course, you have to love children, and, and she's particularly good with babies. So she takes the, if you were a new parent and you brought your baby to the daycare and it was very emotional, it's my mother who's the one who takes the baby and reassures the parents and takes care of the baby. Um, my mom is, is um, again, I, would, I won't tell her her age either, but my, my mom is, is, I'm 40, and she's my mom, and I'll just say that. And um, she's still working, needs to work, doesn't have any savings really, um, so she's an essential worker, according to the order. 
and and um, yeah, I don't have to tell you how babies work. Uh, it's not a really hygienic environment. You wear gloves, you wear masks, you can do all kinds of things. You can clean it every every second of every day, which is pretty much what she does. Um, but they're babies, and and disease has always spread through daycare centers relatively easily just because of the nature of the work. So she's in a very hazardous place, and um, it, she's an essential worker. Our grocery clerks, our grocery stores, Super One here in northern Minnesota just being one example, have had to raise the pay of clerks to keep them on the job because they're getting socked. If you haven't been to the grocery store, you, well, I'm sure most of us have at this point. You know, they're under a lot of stress. They've got, you know, Christmas dinner crowds all the time, uh, all day, every day. And, um, and so they've, they, they've got to put these low-paid workers on higher pay to keep them. And, and I, Chuck and I have disagreed, and we might always disagree about the policy implications of, of this, but I hope that we can maybe start to agree on the value side of this, the value of workers of all tiers, and the value that, that having a job and doing something that we might call menial or what they used to call in the old mining union days, unskilled workers, that maybe we can stop having this cultural disdain for the lower rungs of our labor class, the quote-unquote lower rungs, and realize that if a person can spend a full work week taking care of our food, taking care of the babies while we go to work, that they're a valuable person and that they should be able to live comfortably, to have sick days, which my mom doesn't have, to have vacation or, or medical insurance, which my mother doesn't have. Um, and I know it's personal. I'm talking about my mom now. But, but it really got me thinking when she was talking about how she had to go to work, and, um, but still was losing hours, too. So she was making less money than usual, but still had to go in. So she got all the risk and none of the reward. And that really bothers me. And, and I think maybe we can start to think about that as a society now that we've experienced this. And, and she's just one of millions of workers who are experiencing that. Yeah, I, I think Aaron and I have always agreed on the, the value of the people uh, who work at, you know, the, the holiday gas station and the Super One. And I think you're seeing that now today. Th- those of us that are able to shelter in place and not leave our homes depend on this vast army of people who are largely undervalued and underappreciated in society. I, I, I think, you know, the, the one place where we have maybe had disagreement is on what the policy response for that should be. But I, I think it's very clear today, and, and you can see – you know, uh, wages going up and uh, people being compensated more because these are essential jobs. These are the these are the jobs that our economy, the the, the kind of top down centralized economy, has taken vast joy and and relish in uh, making into commodities, making into uh, you know jobs that they could compensate less and outsource uh, overseas. When we look at the idea of a food of a supply chain now going through ten different countries and thousands of miles to get you the basics of everyday life, uh, this looks ridiculous. And I think a byproduct of this, just like it's been a byproduct of of things like this in the past, when the Black Plague came through and, and wiped out you know half of Europeans' population, 
the ones that were left over uh, actually had a much higher quality of life because all of a sudden there wasn't all this surf labor around to exploit. You actually had to treat people decently. I hope we can have that effect now, uh, and I hope our systems evolve and change to have that outcome uh, without the death rates because it's obvious right now who this economy is built upon. That's Chuck Marone. He and Aaron Brown are our Dig Deep commentators. We get a conservative viewpoint and a liberal viewpoint and talk about some of the things going on in our world. You know, we've been really heartened to hear how many people are connecting with community radio at this time and are sending us information about their community so we can get that out there. And it um, we're just we're really glad that people are connecting in that way and lots of people sharing what we're doing online. Um, I know you guys are media consumers and news consumers, and I think you probably in this time are trying to be healthy about that as well and not do too much of that. And I kind of always rely on you guys for um, tips when it comes to like who you're reading right now or who you are trusting in these sort of times. And I wonder if each of you might uh, give us an idea of, of something we could read or, or watch. Um, I guess I'll go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Aaron, first time caller, long time listener. No, um, <laughs> um, I, uh, as you might expect, and I kind of hinted at it, I think we all have to be really careful with our 24-hour cable news networks. I mean, whatever your brand of poison is, I, I, I generally limit that. I, I might turn one on if I want to watch a speaker who's speak giving a press conference or something. Even that, I tend, I've now tended to watch. I, at first, I watched some because it was all this very novel news, very interesting stuff, and I was, but I don't, I noticed too that it didn't make me feel very well when you watch it too long, and I know people who've got it on all day, and I don't think it's good for that, for the, for you to do that. Um, so I tend to avoid the cable news. Um, I prefer, uh, if I'm going to go with a big uh, national, international news service, um, I actually like, and this is, I don't know if this is a political thing, but I like BBC World News because they cover this story, and and indeed it makes sense, but they cover it without the internal domestic biases that any media source in the United States would have. They they kind of treat us like any other country, and and so it's just pretty fact-based. I I, I actually rather enjoy their coverage if you're going to go for the really big picture. Plus, they're also covering the whole world, so you can compare how we're doing versus how other countries are doing, and and that's kind of interesting to me. But, you know, the best sources for me have been the localist sources, the most local. I listen to KAXE and Heidi, who's doing a great job right now, synthesizing and processing all of this information at the state and local level. I think a lot of local newspapers have done a really bang-up job, um, better than they've done, you know, like uh, even... Uh, I read a column for the Hibbing Daily Tribune, and I, I often, you know, we will sometimes make fun of their news coverage in, in years past. But um, 
they're doing a great job. And the Masabi Daily News, who I've often uh, shaken, shook my fist at, they're doing a good job too. MinPost, the independent nonprofit news service, um, the, the, even the Star Tribune is, is, is doing a good job. And there's these other outfits that are producing local news that I really like. Um, because you can get the president's speech and press conference story from anywhere. What you really want to know is is how are people around you doing, and I think it's important to get the big picture, but then spend more time with the local picture. Yeah, and be- Chuck, before you speak, I just want to say I I sure I sure appreciate Minnesota Public Radio at this time too. They they've been very um, good with us in sharing information, and they have some great reporters like Kirsty Marone, who's giving us the um, regional stories as well. So, Chuck, I want to hear from you, too, on sources that you're going to right now. Yeah, she's, she's one, one floor up for me, uh, beaming out uh, important information. So, yeah, it's, I, 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 it's funny because Aaron and I, I think, have evolved to consume in a lot the same ways because I... I find the BBC to be like the place to go uh, because it doesn't have all the filtering that I don't like. And uh, NPR has been fantastic as well. I-, I will see a headline somewhere and I'm like, okay, that seems crazy. And then I'll go to NPR and they have it in a different way that, you know, makes sense. And I'm like, okay, this is good reporting right now. Um, but I-, I-, I have actually found that in this situation, there's two things. First, Twitter has been fantastic in cutting through and actually getting uh, firsthand stories of life that I've actually found Twitter for once in my life to have value. Um, it's, a, it's a highly curated feed, and I don't follow that many people, but the people I do follow are providing some really good firsthand accounts. The, the other part of this, though, is I think this is a good time for a good book. You know, it's a good time... Uh, if, if, if you are one of the lucky ones who are able to shelter in place, and I, I say that with lots of intention, I know it's difficult, but, you know, if you're not one of the people who has to be out there on the front line, either getting our food to us or working in a hospital, you do have the capacity now to, to sit down with a good book, um, to, to take some time to do things that maybe you've put off, and you know, sacrifice the the blow-by-blow news reporting because, really, you can get 20 minutes of news a day and know exactly what's going on. This thing is not moving that quickly. Uh, That's part of the frustration. So, you know, tune in to KAXE, and uh, I I think that's uh, that's probably enough for most people. Who are some of those uh, Twitter people that you follow? Well, you can go follow me. Okay, and then you know, <laughs> do some research. CL Marone, and you can see my whole list. Uh, you know, I, I I follow probably 250 people, and um, you know, I I have uh, very intentionally gone out and curated a list of people not like me, and I, I think that's what I find most valuable about it. Is it's you know, it's not famous people you're going to see. Uh, for the most part, I mean, I got the Pope on there because I have to, but (laughs) beyond that, you know, it's a, it's a rather eclectic, weird list. And, you know, you can go to my Twitter feed and, and look at that list and follow any of those people you want. It's it's pretty easy. What are the Pope's tweets like right now? They're beautiful. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a Catholic, so I'm inclined to, uh, to want to hear what the Pope has to say anyway, but I, I think, 
right now the idea of all of us helping our neighbor and our neighbor being defined in the broadest possible way we can uh, is really kind of the context to frame everything right now. I'm uh, I'm not Catholic, but the Pope's tweets have been um, very good <laughs> and very reassuring and, and of the common good, I think, and uh, I would concur there. Wow. It's Aaron Brown. He's our liberal commentator. Chuck Marone's our conservative. You guys, I'm always grateful when you are here or by phone now because of your thoughtful commentary and your, you've, it's not just right now, but you've always been wanting people to support local businesses and local communities. And I think it's so much, so much more important right now. And, and thanks, thanks for your good thoughts today. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for putting this together. You're welcome. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I miss you guys both a lot. And I, I, let me just back up the last thing you said, Heidi. We, the thing that we can do right now is go help our local businesses, go help our neighbors. And uh, that's a deeply meaningful thing, including helping KXE stay around. You know, those of us in a position to do that should be doing those kind of things right now. So thanks for being there, Heidi. You're welcome. Thanks, you guys. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Take care. Bye-bye.